Welcome back to Text Catheter, everybody. I am your co-host, Mark, and with me is Jason. We've got a great guest with us today, uh, John Birch. Not not Birch, John Birch, excuse me. Uh, uh, our good friend here serves as vice president of the Appellate Advocacy for Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the largest public interest law firm in the world defending religious liberty, free speech, parental rights, marriage and family, and the right to life. John has argued 12 cases in front of the United States Supreme Court, including cases defending the Catholic Church's teaching on marriage and sexuality. John speaks frequently to groups, both religious and secular, about topics such as marriage, human sexuality, the right to life, and religious liberty. He's a married father of five and a fellow fourth degree uh, Knight of Columbus, a three-time past president of the Grand Rapids Legatus Chapter, and a member of the Pro-Life Partners Foundation Advisory Board. He is also the author of our of tonight's discussion, his newest book, Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. John, thank you so much for being on the program. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank, thank you, Mark. You, yeah, happy to be here. John, usually at the, at the start of these things, well, we should pray before we start as we usually do on our program. So for all of you who are uh, joining along with us, we invite you to join us uh, in, a, in a quick prayer for, to the Holy Ghost to enlighten our discussion, to edify us. <laughs> to give us the wisdom and understanding that we need to delve into this topic. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Veni Sancti Spiritus, repletor accorda fidelium, et tui amoris in ei signi macende. Imite Spiritum tuum et creabuntur, et renovabis faciam tere. Oremos. Deus qui corda fidelium, Sancti Spiritus, illustrazione docuisti, da nobis iniorum spiritu recta sapere, et de eo semper consolazione gardere, per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. Amen. Um, normally, the way I start out these episodes is what inspired you to write this book? But that is an insane question in the time that we're living in right now. I guess my only topic is my, guess my only question is why did it take you so long to write, to write this book? I mean, in, yeah. the, in the whole grand scheme of topics that like pervade this culture war we're in, I've I've been feeling myself that this this topic of this gender ideology is the most destructive uh, out of all the things that we're sort of talking about nowadays. But this book in particular comes at it from a little bit different of a perspective, and that is it, it, it's not really fighting a culture war. Um, it sort of just lays out what the Catholic Church has to say about all this stuff. Were you sort of inspired? I mean, what inspired you to come at this from the lens of looking at this through the eyes of Holy Mother Church? What was what was the impetus for that for you? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. And it is a book that I wish I would have started writing five years ago. Um, I don't think any lawyer goes to law school, you know, especially as long ago as I did back in the mid 1990s, aspiring to write a book about gender ideology. Um, but the, the work that I do, religious liberty and free speech work, uh, plus pro-life work, uh, but you know, in those first two categories, the religious liberty and the free speech, um, we have seen like a complete reversal in the docket. Uh, whereas in the, the years immediately following Obergefell, a lot of those types of disputes were over marriage, um, you know, the, the cake baker and the florist and, and things like that. Uh, today, I'd say 95% of my docket involving the free speech and religious liberty cases um, revolves around gender ideology. And so, you know, I, I was litigating a lot of those cases. It started with 
privacy spaces at uh, high schools, especially um, where they were allowing boys who identified as girls to go into the shower and the restroom and the locker room. And that quickly pivoted to the, the sports areas where we had young women in Connecticut, for example, we have four clients there who lost 15 state championships in girls track and field to two boys identifying as girls. And then it was compelled pronouns. And you know now it's the schools that have these policies encouraging kids to identify as transgender, but to keep it a secret from the parents in some states, even removing parents or uh, children from their parents' homes if the parents won't affirm their gender ideology. So, you know, I, I was just dealing with this at work all the time. And as a Catholic, it was important for me to understand the underlying theology behind it, too. And, you know, the more I, I looked at it from that perspective, really, the, the more surprised and delighted I was to find out how much Pope Francis had spoken and written about this. And then especially bishops here in the United States who had written all of these beautiful policies and, um, you know, kind of letters to their, their flocks, trying to help people understand the Catholic Church's teaching on this. And my purpose as a, a lawyer at Alliance Defending Freedom, our whole mission is to keep the doors open for the spread of the gospel. And so the, the cases that we win in the Supreme Court allow people like you, Mark and Jason, to be able to speak freely on a podcast about gender ideology. It allows people to go to their workplace, public or private, and not have to wear the ally pin and use someone's preferred pronouns if they believe that to be a lie, which it is. Um, but keeping the door open only works for so long. Eventually, if you can't change hearts and minds in the culture, then courts will change. Uh, we'll have presidents and congresses that'll put new people on the Supreme Court and new people in lower courts, and we won't be able to get those victories anymore. So it was incredibly important to me as a lawyer to also be able to speak to Catholics and even to the broader Christian church at large about the reasons that we have for proclaiming the goodness of the body the way God created it. Um, so to go beyond the legal issues and to talk about the theology and the natural law, and especially the science, because as we know that the church has been criticized for centuries about being inconsistent with science, and that's an unfair accusation. Uh, the revelation that we have from the Bible and from the church forefathers and from the church itself, completely consistent with the scientific method, scientific inquiry. And nowhere is that more true than gender ideology. And so I wanted to take all of those pieces, the, the moral, the theological, the science, the legal, kind of the, the, the public issues, and put them all together in one book that just an ordinary Catholic in the pew, somebody who doesn't have a law degree, who doesn't have a medical degree, who doesn't have a theology degree, could pick it up and, and really quickly and easily understand all these issues so that they could start having conversations at home with their family members, especially their kids, to talk about it in the workplace with their neighbors and friends, and that we could start a cultural revolution. And that was the reason I wrote the book. I, I did want to ask you, because in the book, you, you know, in the opening sections, you talk about why does it matter, which I think you answered, you know, some of that to a degree. But you also speak about love and truth and Pope Benedict XVI's writings on that. I had a conversation with one of my daughters recently about telling the truth and hurting people's feelings. And I, you know, I mentioned to her, I said, never apologize for telling the truth. Because if somebody's feelings are hurt because you're telling them the truth, well, then the scandal is within themselves, not what you're telling them. But there's, there's an aspect to that, that when we tell people the truth, you have to do it in love. I guess if uh, my question to you is, if, if you can't, how would we go, or what's your recommendation going into the world when speaking these truths to the people about, you know, these eternal truths about gender 
and all that, how should we approach, you know, the, the person next door to us or the person at, at our job when we speak, speak of these things while proclaiming the truth, but doing it in love? Well, that's the big challenge, because in this modern cultural moment, if you go to speak the truth about gender, gender ideology or about abortion or about marriage between one man and one woman, the way God designed it, uh, you're going to be labeled as a bigoter, a hater, someone who discriminates and things like that. And, and so we need to approach it like we do any church topic when we want to evangelize. And that is with the utmost compassion and charity, because we don't always know where someone else is coming from. You know, that neighbor that you talk to who might be uh, on their surface really hostile about this issue may have suffered from gender dysphoria or had a close relative or friend who had gender dysphoria. You know, and, and so these issues can touch really close to home. And when you think about the ways to most charitably interact with someone, um, usually it's to listen first. Um, Pope Francis had this example, and I, I think it's a good insight that when um, you're working in the field hospital and someone comes in and they've got terrible blood loss and they need to have their leg amputated, you don't start by telling them about the problems they're having with their cholesterol and their high blood pressure. Um, you, you need to tend to the wound first. And there are a lot of wounded people out there and certainly wounded by this false gender ideology. Um, so we, we need to, to ask a lot of questions and be really good listeners. And through that process, we can start to understand where that person is coming from and empathize with that. And you know, at that point, then we can start introducing these truths. And sometimes it's as simple as asking a question that will reveal the truth. So let's say you've gotten deep into a conversation with someone um, and, and they're still pressing the point that gender ideology is something that everybody, including Catholics, should support because uh, kids who don't get affirmed in their gender are going to commit suicide and things like that. You know, ask a question like, well, you know, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I've read a little bit about gender ideology and other gender dysphorias. Why is it that among anorexia and gender dysmorphia or body dysmorphia, you know, and all these other mental issues, where the person's mind is not aligned with their body, we encourage them to align the mind with the body, with objective reality, except in gender ideology. There it's different. Why would that be? You know, and, and then that can start a conversation where you can get into the science and get into the church's teachings and get into the terrible lies that are being fed to us from popular culture, especially from Hollywood and from mass media. Uh, but, you know, we, we really do need to go into this with the heart of Christ. And I, I think Pope Benedict really nailed it on the head when he talked about these types of conversations um, that we need to do it in charity. That's what we've been talking about with the utmost kindness and listening ears and empathy. Uh, but we also do need to have the truth because charity without truth is not love at all. And, and one of the examples that I use in the book, every parent will immediately understand this, um, is if a child really, really wants to touch a hot stove. And the parent says, no, you can't do that. It'll hurt you. And they say, no, but I want to. I, I think it'll make me feel better. And no parent would allow them to do that because they understand an objective truth about the hot stove that the child does not, that if they touch it, it's going to burn them and hurt them severely. And if we understand love the way the church teaches it in the catechism, not as some soupy sentimental feeling like you see in the movies, where as long as I'm feeling good, then I'm, I'm feeling love. But no, instead, love is willing the good of the other at all times. You know, it's a conscious choice to make decisions and to act in certain ways that are always going to be in the other person's best interests, not responsive to their feelings, their wants, but what's truly best for them. You know, that the parent will not let the child touch the hot stove. 
And, and so we need to constantly be speaking in truth when we have these conversations because there's nothing worse than lying to someone about something as important as gender ideology when it's like the hot stove. It'll, it'll burn them and hurt them severely. Very, very good answer. Very good answer to, to, and I, to that yeah, question. And I, I love- and I think that's the difficulty, right, is, is navigating these waters. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with that. Well, the first the first chapter of your book is so apropos is so apropos, and if you'll allow me a slight digression here, the first the first chapter is called "What is Truth?" All right, we so we know we know the story from Scripture, where Pilate asks Jesus, "What is truth?" Right, and I think you know when I was a kid and I first read that, I, I went, "Is Pilate stupid? It, it it's the, the truth is that which is, as opposed to that which isn't." Duh. As I've gotten older in life, I am reminded of an anonymous proverb from somebody in the 20th century who said, the truth is like poetry, and most people hate poetry. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've had a chance, John, to watch uh, HBO's excellent miniseries on Chernobyl. I just recently watched it again recently. Um, it's it, Far be it from me to admit that HBO has ever made anything edifying, <laughs> but... This this sometimes even a blind squirrel finds a nut. (laughs) Exactly, and this is exactly what they've done. It's a it's a story that takes place in the Soviet Union, a a regime built on lies and lying, and 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 the and the bigger of a liar you are, the more virtuous you are. If that sounds vaguely familiar to anybody today, you know, just feel free to panic. But the the main character asks, he says, you know, living in the Soviet Union, we always ask ourselves what the cost is of telling the truth. But now after Chernobyl, I have to ask, what is the cost of lies? That is a very, very telling statement, especially when we're dealing with this, because I don't get the sense that very many people buy into this gender ideology, but we feel pressured to because the cost of telling the truth if the if the people on the other side of this debate have their way is very extreme. Um, and so to the work that you've done in the law, it's a step in the right direction. It, it gives us a certain amount of legal protections. Uh, but I think in a certain sense, we, we, we need to rediscover, like you said, the theological underpinnings of what we're talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong, John, and I don't know if you get this sense or not, but people... I think it in the mid sixties, late seventies started like incorporating a lot of Eastern religious ideas. And so there's this sense nowadays, and I've heard very many Catholics say this, that, that this is a vessel and the real me is like in here somewhere, right? So this sort of amalgamous, I'm in here somewhere and, and the real me is fighting to get out. And I've heard a lot of Catholics, my father, one of them saying, Oh, just, just cremate me after I die. Cause this is just a vessel and I won't, I won't need this in the afterlife. Why, why is, why is the Catholic church's idea about this so different? Well, the Catholic church believes that we are not souls trapped in the body, but instead that we are embodied souls and that our body expresses something about who we are. And this is kind of an intuitive thing. If someone slaps me on the face, I say, you hurt me. I don't say you hurt my body. We we all associate from, you know, the time that we start to, to think and to walk, our bodies with our person. They're the, the same thing and God intended it that way. And the, this whole idea that we're just kind of trapped in a shell um, actually goes back far before the, the 60s and the 70s, all the way back to the second century. 
And there is a heresy uh, called Gnosticism, which people may have heard about, but not really understood what that's all about. Um, and it actually came from Christians who were having a difficult time swallowing the fact that Jesus was resurrected body and soul. Uh, they, they could wrap their minds around the idea that the, the Messiah, that the Son of God, could have risen with his soul because that was just a spirit. And they understood that, you know, that the body's death could not keep that spirit down. Uh, but it, it blew their minds to the point where they couldn't accept the teaching that he actually came back with a glorified body. And so the church was really quick to stamp out that heresy. But Gnosticism has continued to rear its head in a variety of forms over the, the years over the centuries. And, and here we are with just another manifestation of it today. And the whole idea of a Gnostic is really remarkably parallel to those who are pushing gender ideology. It's that the soul is the most important part of the body. And so the whole purpose in life is to elevate that soul so that it can get to its ultimate destination. The Gnostics thought that that was heaven. Gender ideology, it's not clear where they think the soul's destination is if it has any destination at all. But, but if you're focused on that soul, then the body really becomes irrelevant and you can do whatever you want to it. And so in the context of gender ideology, that means you can mutilate or transform genitals because they don't say anything about the human person. And, and the Catholic Church's recent teachings on gender ideology are, are so beautiful on this because they talk repeatedly about how Jesus uses the body and the material world to show beauty and to show importance. You know, it was important for Jesus when he resurrected soul and body to demonstrate to the apostles that they could touch him, that they could feel the wounds in his hands and in his side. It was important to him that they could see him eating. He, he asked for food that very first resurrection day when he entered into the, the room where the apostles were gathered. And then he did it again on the, the beach in the Gospel of John. Um, when uh, Peter walked across the water and then started to fall in and then and Jesus rescued him. You know, he had food cooking on the beach so that they could see him eating. His body was all something, it was something important that they understand that this was a material part of him that said something about who he was. He was God incarnate, not just God in spirit. And, and really, when you think about it, kind of in a broader sense, the entire material world is all God's creation. And gifts like bread and wine, which are transformed into the body and blood of Christ during the Eucharist. Now, we're, we're using these material things because God values all the material things that he made. He didn't make our bodies, just like he didn't make anything else, to be thrown away or discarded or manipulated in a way that's inconsistent with his, his eternal plan. Um, certainly, he gave us free will to manipulate a lot of things, but we still need to do it with, within the confines of the plan that, that he intended. Um, so, you know, to make a, a long answer short to your question, uh, this idea of our independent soul has been around for a long time, and it just caught up to us with this gender ideology and, and would love to explore how that happened through psychology and, and culture. Uh, you know, but today it's in stark contrast with the church, which values the body and says that we want to honor our bodies in the same way that we body, uh, value the person, because at the end of time, our bodies are going to be reunited with our souls in heaven after the last judgment. And so that makes the body something worth um, uh, protecting, respecting and honoring. When I so, was a kid, what, I remember when, 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 when I was learning about the Eucharist in first communion class. In my mind, I, th I thought this is Jesus's dead body because of the phrasing that we would use, the, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And like, you know, on CSI Miami, when, I, when somebody comes in and says, I found the body in the other room, what does that mean? That's a dead body. We, we know that, right? That's what, that's what the parlance means. And yet, 
obviously the mistake was mine of a, of a, of a child who didn't quite understand the deep theological significance that I came to understand when I got older, that when the church presents us with Christ in the fullness of his presence, she gives us the body of Christ. She doesn't hold up. This is bread with the spirit of Christ in it. Amen. That's not what she does. Behold the body. And I, and I just thought, well, that's, that's such an interesting way to phrase that. Why, why do we phrase it that way? And that is because, you know, and a lot of what we're talking about here, our response to this gender ideology nonsense that's going on in our culture is deeply rooted in the resurrection. It's deeply rooted in the resurrection theology. And I love that you went there in this book because I felt for so long that's what's missing from this discussion. It, go, it, it degenerates so quickly into a culture war. But there's something deeper and much more intrinsic to the nature of ourselves and our relationship to the Almighty Himself. I mean, we see in Genesis the creation of the hierarchy of creation. And, you know, all the animals and most of the plants reproduce sexually. So, yeah, I have, there's, there's male dogs and there's female dogs and there's male uh, antelopes and, and female antelopes and things like that. But the first time that gender is mentioned in the Bible is when God creates us. That's the very first time that God says male and female, he created them, which I guess to me means that this idea of our gender is so intrinsic to who we are, you literally can't be a person without it. And it's such, and, and to tell a child of all people that, you know, God didn't even love you enough to put you in your body. What a horrible thing to say to someone. And, you know, like we were talking about the, the resurrection, you're going to live forever in this wrong body. Well, yeah, of course the suicide rate is up. Absolutely, yeah. it, it is. I mean, it's just a horribly destructive thing, Jason. I can't yeah, and, and before we move on, I, I want to pause yeah. that, that reading from Genesis because the, the gendered nature of the body, the sexed nature of the body um, is critically important for two reasons. It helps us relate to each other and it also helps us relate to God. And, and Genesis teaches that, you know, through John Paul II's theology of the body um, that we all know that Adam starts off in Genesis alone and he doesn't have a suitable helpmate. Uh, the, the word there is actually azer, which you probably know is not like an assistant. It's not a secretary or an administrative staff person. Uh, an azer is someone who is vitally important to helping someone achieve their fullness, their potential. And God himself is referred to in the Old Testament as an azer more than a dozen times. And so, you know, Adam has kind of surveyed all the creatures, the dogs, the antelopes, the birds, the fish, everything else, and hasn't found that suitable helpmate, the suitable azer. And so that's when God puts him to sleep and creates Eve. And, you know, they, they see each other and Adam immediately exclaims, you know, at last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He understands this is the helpmate that he and God were looking for. Uh, but he also would have immediately recognized in her nakedness that they're not the same, that they have two very different bodies that are complementary. And even though Adam had a full respiratory system and a muscular system and a skeletal system, that he only had one half of a reproductive system. And it's only when he gives himself as pure gift, when, when he loves Eve completely and gives of himself to will the best for her, the very love we were just talking about, 
that he can share that reproductive capacity and share in co-creation with God to create a new life, a son mm -hmm. or a daughter. And it's that exchange of love between man and wife in a sacramental marriage uh, from which, you know, is produced uh, a third person, a child. It's an icon of the Trinity where God, the father and God, the son have this mutual exchange of love and proceeding from it is God, the Holy Spirit. And so that, that maleness and the femaleness helps us to understand who God, the Trinity is, um, but it also helps us relate to one another. And so Pope Francis talks about both of these aspects. He says, first of all, if you reject the body, then you're rejecting gift and, and you're breaching your relationship with God, just like anytime we reject God's gifts to us. Uh, but he talks in even more detail about that relationship with other people, that if I reject my body, if I reject who I am, who God made me to be, then it's impossible for me to have authentic, loving relationships with other people because I'm a denying a piece of myself that's essential for those relationships to develop. So if you think about the two great commandments that Jesus talks about, loving God and loving neighbor, both of those are breached when we give up on the body and say it has no meaning and I can change it and manipulate it because I was born in the wrong shell. Um, and so that's why the, the whole notion of gender ideology is in stark conflict with Catholic anthropology. Yeah, and it's yeah. just not even yeah. really consistent because when you would, when you say, well, there is no, there is no such thing as uh, objective gender, and 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 you know, gender and sex are not correlated or not correlated and things like that. But then you turn around and say that this is who I really am on the inside. I mean, now you're admitting an objective reality that exists exterior of everyone else's notions, which you just denied a minute ago. And that's the, that's the thing that I liked about, you know, when getting off to what is truth is important and lies are not consistent because they're not meant to be lies are enforced through fear and intimidation. And that's what, that's, that's what they do. But if you get down into what is really going on here, what is the truth? Look for a, a, a consistent, a, a consistent um, uh, you know, way of thinking about this, which I think the church's teachings on this give us. Jason? Um, no, I was just, just a couple of comments, <clears throat> you know, and to one of John's points, that's why I've, I've always really liked the saying that marriage is a Trinitarian type love, right? Because, mm -hmm. because it is that icon of, of, um, of, of the blessed Trinity. And, you know, t talking about who people are at their very core, I think that's why those within the gender ideology movement are so hell bent on making other people affirm who they are, you know, because they know inside, they know deep down that what they are trying to affirm is a lie. And no matter how many people affirm who they are, they can't deny who God created them or, or how God created them, right? Male and female. And, you know, if I were to go to John or Mark and uh, berate you and tell you, you were a woman, you were this or that, it wouldn't matter to you because deep down you're going to know, well, that's, that's a lie. That's not who, who I am. Right now, everything that, that, that y'all talked about is, is awesome and beautiful. And, and I agree wholeheartedly with it. I thought it was all very well said, but you know, that, that kind of goes to speaking to people that share common beliefs, right? When we're out in the world fighting this, this gender ideology, typically we will come across people that will say, 
well, that's great, but I, I reject, you know, Christianity. I reject the Catholic church or whatever the same may be. What is it your business? What this person does, they're not harming anybody. What is your response to that, John? When, when they make the claim, Hey, I'm not harming anybody or so-and-so is not harming anybody. They're just living their life and, and, and having fun and, and doing the best they can. What's, what would be your response to that? Well, that's just a modern lie that what we do does not affect anybody else. And, and that's why sins like pornography um, you know, and, and things like that, which people think of as being only focused on themselves, it doesn't affect anybody else, um, does impact other people. It infects the, the people who are in the industry. Um, if there's no demand for pornography, then people won't be exploited to engage in terrible sex acts and things like that. Um, it impacts adversely the relationships with the people that you have around you because it draws you in towards yourself in a very selfish way instead of projecting outward and looking towards other people and trying to love them the best way that you can. Um, and, and so there's no decision that we can make in our life that doesn't have an impact on other people. You know, even something as simple as alcoholism, you think of someone um, just sitting there and, and drinking by themselves, that doesn't affect anybody. Well, certainly it affects the relationships around them. Um, when they lose their job, it impacts the family tremendously. And when they get behind the wheel of the car, um, it impacts those that are put in danger because of their drunk driving. Uh, and so gender ideology is no different. And, and it starts with the person who's making that choice. And we would never abandon anybody in any other circumstance if they were hurting themselves in some way and we could do something to stop it. You know, if we knew that someone was engaged in behavior that would result in illness or death, um, you know, even if we barely knew them, we would jump in and try to do something to try to help that person to preserve themselves. And, and that's certainly true with gender ideology where the best long-term studies that we have um, from, from Europe show that people who go through transition, um, you, you can't really transition. As Mark said, every uh, cell in your body is going to still tell whether you're a male or a female, even if you go through surgery. But you know, for people who try to, to do that, that the long-term outlook, the suicide rates actually get higher. There, there's a greater death from suicide. There's greater incidence of mental health problems. There's infertility, permanent. There's loss of sexual function. There's loss of bone loss, or uh, there's bone loss of density. Um, there's heart trouble. There's all kinds of other things that happen. Um, you know, so th there's harm for that person, but then there's also harm to everybody else around them. Uh, gender ideology harms relationships between kids and their parents, especially when parents won't affirm a lie and they stand strong in the truth. Um, I've, I've seen and talked to many people whose families have been broken by this. Um, when you allow one person to pursue this road, it's going to harm other people, especially young people in schools that see it and they see someone who's being held up as a model or an example as, as being cool or trendy because they're trans or non-binary or something like that. And it's going to cause other people to go down this road. Um, it, it certainly hurts doctors who are engaged in this surgery and then realize years after the fact that they crippled and maimed numerous people for no positive health reasons whatsoever, you know, kind of like the abortionist who after the fact realizes that the evil that they've done. Um, so you can just take case after case after case, heck, even the, the athletic situations that we were talking about, you know, where, where people making the, the individual choice that only affects me to identify as a boy are all of a sudden winning titles and displacing girls from winter stands and from finals races and from college competition uh, because of gender ideology, you start to understand that this impacts a great many people. I mean, Many of your listeners may not know that the all-time winningest woman on Jeopardy right now is actually a man who identifies as female. Um, so, so, so everyone is hurt when you make choices like this, uh, but, but no one more than the individual and women 
whose accomplishments and achievements and ability to fairly compete are taken away by men who identify as women. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy turn when you think about it, about, you know, the arc that feminine feminism has taken. Somehow they've gotten back to affirming and, and believing that, you know, men are women and they're still taking all the titles or, you know, like you said, using the example of Jeopardy. It's just to me, it's just a crazy arc. that. Well, has, there's that, that actually has a sharp divide among feminists over this issue right now. Um, and, and so if you're a, a gender activist, um, you've got an acronym for those feminists who may disagree with a lot of what the Catholic Church teaches, but agrees with us on the gender ideology issue. And um, they call them TERFs, T-E-R-F is the acronym. And that stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. So these are the women you know, who came through the, the sexual revolution and, and they think that um, you know, women have the same rights as men, which they do, and they push for all kinds of policies supporting that but they don't support the idea that simply by identifying as a, a female, that a man can come in and take all the rights and responsibilities of females. And they're being excluded too. I, I talk about in the book, uh, Martina Navratilova. Um, she's been part of the LGBT community for 30 years. Um, she serves on or served on all kinds of boards and, and things like that, promoting LGBT causes. Uh, but then she spoke out about men identifying as women competing in sports and how unfair and unjust that was. And she was immediately kicked out of the club. They kicked her off all the boards that she was on. She's not allowed to be a spokesperson anymore. She's persona non grata in, in that community. You know, or JK Rowling, the most famous author in the world. And uh, she's been completely painted as a, a bigot and a discriminator by trans ideologists on Twitter and other social media platforms because of her courage speaking out about men who identify as women and take women's spaces. Now, the, the, those feminists, they recognize something that if nothing separates men and women other than whatever you call yourself, then the whole definition of woman has been lost and womanhood itself is in jeopardy. Women are erased. Um, so, so there's still a contingent of them that are, are very strong on this issue and they file yeah. cases and, and things like that, you know, but there are others who, who don't see the contradiction that we were talking about earlier, um, to say on the one hand that male and female doesn't mean anything, but on the other hand, if I feel like a female, whatever that means to say a 12 year old boy, who's never been a woman, you know, their, their stereotypical notion of what it might feel like to be a female, then they should immediately change all of their body parts to conform to that stereotype. Um, it, it's just a contradictory madness. And I, I did want to add something to that is, you know, like you said, even even among the groups, there's a divide between the feminist and and LGBTQ activists and all that uh, on this topic. But at the same time, like me personally, and y'all may disagree, I don't, I guess I don't have much sympathy coming from that side because it's almost like you have propagated and helped promote this moral relativism where, you know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, truth, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And it almost seems like it's opened up, like, like they have helped open up this Pandora's box to the, is that the right term? Pandora's box yeah. in order to, um, to allow where we are today. Cause I sit back and I look and I, and I just, I can't fathom like, how have we gotten here in the West? How have we gotten to where we are with this gender ideology? And you touch on it in your books on this moral relativism. I, I mean, it just, it, it, it's just, 
led us down this path. And like those that, that, that the examples that you use among the certain feminists, the turfs and all them, it's like, look, you helped get us to where we are. You may disagree with what they're doing now, but because you couldn't boldly speak truth and, and, and stand for truth. Here we are. Do, do, do you agree or, or disagree with that or? Well, I, I'm going to defend the feminists a little bit and, and say that I can't put the blame on them. I really put the blame on the entire culture. And that includes a lot of I Catholics. Agree. I agree. Because you know, Yeah, because this moral relativism is something that you know starts to spring in the wake of the sexual revolution. And, and there's no doubt that I'm sure feminists were, were pushing it out of the gate. You know, then you get to the 1980s with political correctness. Uh, where we were starting to change the language so that people wouldn't feel bad about themselves. And all of a sudden that kind of became a cultural tidal wave. And that, that, that tidal wave embraced moral relativism because it was something that reduced friction and conflict in, the, in society and culture because it eliminated any requirement that I speak the truth because my truth is different than your truth. And that way I don't have to criticize you for holding different beliefs than I do. You know, and, and so just to define the term moral relativism, my, what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you, and, and never the two shall meet, um, you know, it became this thing where it was just nice. If, if I believe that life began at conception and that an abortion, even at a very early stage, is taking a human life, uh, but you don't have that belief and you have an abortion, well, I don't have to criticize you because that might not be true for you. You know, and, and you heard uh, now President Joe Biden talking about that in his uh, vice presidential debate with um, Paul Ryan, you know, back when Obama was, was running the second time. And he, he said one of the most reprehensible things that I think anyone could ever say about abortion and moral relativism. He said, I follow the, the Catholic Church's teaching that life begins at conception, but I would never impose my view on anybody else. You know, that's moral relativism. You know, what he's saying is, I know abortion to be child murder. It's infanticide. And yet I'm going to stand by and let that happen because if you want to kill your child, I'm okay with that. You know, and, and that's where moral relativism leads. To when say nothing about, of the fact that he is a professional legislator who does nothing but impose morality on people all day <laughs> exactly, long. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so, so, you know, so the problem they, they with moral relativism. Be, yeah, they can't even be true in their, they can't even tell the truth when they're lying. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know, I didn't mean to necessarily um, single out the the, the feminists. That's just who I chose to pick on today. But 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 I think you're. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's. I think we all as a society have have a part in this in this stage that we're at because of the way we have viewed uh, truth. You know, it's it, it kind of goes back to like um, I don't mean to gear off here, but it kind of goes back to like the topic of gay marriage. I am a firm believer that the divorce and remarriage among culture, among heterosexuals has led us to where that, that, that was accepted. Now, is that the only mm -hmm. thing? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. But I think it played a big part in, you know, the view of marriage being just whatever and nothing sacred, but, uh, but no, no, right. I, I, Mark I, invited I agree me to go on tangents, right? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, 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 so I'm going to take that topic, Jason, and, and run with that just for a minute. And then I want to come back Please to moral do. relativism and, and the problems we're having with that today. Um, but, but I argued Obergefell in the U.S. Supreme Court defending the church's view that marriage is between one man and one woman. So I, I thought about that issue a great deal. And, you know, the, the, the reason why we have same-sex marriage in the United States is because the Catholic Church lost the hearts and minds of people when it came to contraception all the way back after Pope Paul VI issued Humana Vitae. 
because once you sever that connection between marriage, the sexual act, and procreation, the creation of, of children, then there's nothing that would stop someone from defining marriage to be a marriage between two individuals, yeah. two men, two women who aren't capable of having children. The, the logical link behind them is gone. The only reason the government has an interest in marriage is because when a man and a woman come together, they can create a child and that child needs to be cared for and the government doesn't want that child on the government died. Otherwise, the government has no interest in regulating relationships and emotional attachments between individuals. It doesn't care about our friendships. It doesn't care that we're on this podcast. It doesn't care who I decide to be in love with or not. The only reason it cares about marriage is about keeping that child within a couple that will be permanently attached to each other so that they can rear and, and take care of that child. And so because we weren't out there, you know, now, now I'm not speaking to the three of us individually. You weren't even born there in the 1960s. Uh, at least I wasn't. I don't know about the two of you. I was not. But no. you, don't, you don't look like you were around in the 60s. Um, but because we weren't strong enough speaking the truth about contraception, um, that led to abortion. It led to no-fault divorce. And eventually it led to same-sex marriage because the whole idea of keeping a child in a permanent family with his mother and his biological mother and father was lost. Um, so so you're, you're right. It, it's the failure to speak the truth that results in cultural trends that take us even farther from the truth. And, and to, to bring it back then to moral relativism, we're in a, a society now where uh, Pope Benedict, when asked what's the biggest problem confronting the world today, didn't say abortion or people's loss of the belief in the true presence or lack of mass attendance. Um, he said it was moral relativism. More than 90% of our young people, adolescents, teenagers, college kids, hold a moral relativistic viewpoint to the, to the point where one of my kids who's at a Catholic college was in a philosophy class. And there were kids in that class who insisted that they would not disagree with someone if they said the world was flat because they believed that if that person thought the world was flat and it didn't hurt anybody, that was their truth and they didn't have any ground to disagree with that. That, that, that's how far the moral relativism has taken us. But, but when you embrace that, then important questions like, when does human life begin? What is the meaning of marriage? What is a man or a woman? Um, you know, the, our, our newest Supreme Court justice couldn't answer the question, what is a woman in her confirmation hearing? And, and the reason is because we've embraced this moral relativistic worldview where everything is just a matter of opinion. You know, asking when life begins is like asking what your favorite type of ice cream is. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, you know, I know I keep going back to this, this series about Chernobyl, but it was, it was, uh, it was so poignant because you can see the similarities between the way the Soviet system worked and the way modern parlance in the West works. And there is a sense in which everybody knows, but no one wants to say because to go against the prevailing narrative and the prevailing ideology is well, it's just going to be more trouble for you than it's worth. I mean, in the 1980s, they weren't really throwing people into gulags anymore, but they could certainly make life difficult for you. They could get you fired from your job. You wouldn't be culturally relevant anymore, especially if you were involved in scientific or, or whatever kind of research. Um, they could ostracize you basically from society. They could cancel you in a sense and quite effectively in the Soviet Union dealing, going all the way up into the mid-1990s. And this... It was sort of seen of so what, so I so I'm going to operate this reactor at an unsafe level, 
who really cares? By the time this goes bad, I will have been promoted three times. I'll be party chairman somewhere in Minsk and all that until it literally blew up in their faces. And they caused an accident people didn't even know you could cause with nuclear reactors. I mean, it's a nuclear reactor is not something that typically explodes. It's just not the way it works. And yet the, the lying and the official, well, I'm going to go along with the lie because it's convenient, which is how I, I define cowardice in a sense, um, caused accidents that people didn't even know you could cause. Um, and we see so much of this today. The, the, for, <laughs> recently, an entire company had convinced themselves that they could take a submersible down to, to go see the Titanic yeah that was made out of, you know, cardboard or whatever it was made out of. And that if we can just say that it's safe uh, over and over and over again, it will sort of become that because you that's how everything, you can't just, you that's can't how just everything in our bankruptcy. society works. Yeah. <laughs> I well, that, that's what it. happened with the, the Challenger disaster too in 1986. Yeah. And they, and they, they then, read a lot about that and, and they yeah. had everybody in the room and they knew it was much colder than a typical launch day. And, you know, 40 engineers, NASA engineers, and they said, does anybody have any concerns about this? And there were people in that room who knew that the cold weather could cause the O-rings to fail such that there could be a massive explosion and they would lose the shuttle and, you know, the, the teacher who was on it. So kids are watching this all across the country, but they were too afraid to speak up. They lacked the courage to stop the train that was already in motion. And as a result of that, we, we had the challenge disaster. And, and so when I think about this in terms of gender ideology, you know, that's the, the scenario that should haunt all of your listeners. If you've got someone in your family and they've declared a trans identity and they're starting on the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones, they're thinking about surgery and you don't speak up. And then 10 years down the road, they detransition and they realize they made a horrible mistake. And now they've got a disfigured body that they can't ever repair. They can't ever have children. They may not ever have sexual function again. They've reduced their life expectancy in half. And they say, why didn't anybody tell me? And that, that should be the question that haunts every one of your listeners. Why didn't anyone tell me? And, and when you hear the detransitioners talk today, that's the, the thing that you hear most frequently. You know, I, I went in, I was having these feelings of dysphoria, which are real. You know, gender dysphoria is a diagnosable mental health issue. Sure. Um, and, and, and they didn't investigate the child sexual abuse that I suffered. They didn't investigate the broken relationship I had with my mom or my dad or the weird relationship I had with my uncle who dressed me in girls clothes when I was a kid. Um, instead, they said, oh, you're trans, you know, here, here's a pill. And no one told me that there were long-term negative consequences of pursuing this road. No one ever told me that I could go through counseling and therapy. No one ever told me we, that we 80 to 95% of adolescents and teenagers who are experiencing dysphoria, if left to their own devices and not affirmed, will naturally align their mind with their, their body. Why didn't anyone tell me? And, and it's a, a failure on the part of many, many people to stand up and speak the truth that's resulting in these great harms. Now, I do see you, some, do you I happen see, to ahead, know? Andrew, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask them real quick. Do you happen to know, or, or do they even have studies that show the percentages of those that transition and then detransition that they regret their transition? Are there, are there numbers out on that? Or we, we don't have numbers out on that. What we do have are the numbers on the suicide and the mental health issues. 
So if you take someone who um, has gender dysphoria, and, and again, we're talking about the clinical diagnosis here. Um, sometimes you'll have like, you know, a dozen eighth grade girls all of a sudden come out as non-binary or trans at one time. That's a social contagion that may not have anything to do with a mental health issue. So, so leave them aside. Of the ones who actually have gender dysphoria, they have a suicide rate that's 12 times the general population. That's horrible. And that's why those kids need our compassionate support. They need us to accompany them, to walk by them, and to work through the issues that are causing them to have those disconnected feelings. But if, if as an adult, you go through the total transition, and then you look at it over the long haul, because often um, the, the feelings of regret don't manifest themselves immediately. You know, in, in the immediate aftermath of the surgery, everything's great. Um, but you know, if, if you wait a significant amount of time, that suicide rate goes up to 19 times the general population. So it gets worse. You know, that this idea you can have a, a live son or a dead daughter, um, that, that's just a lie. Um, the incidence of mental health go up, and then you've got all these other, uh, you know, affiliated side effects and things like that. So, you know, as for those who express regret and detransition, we don't have those numbers because most of them won't go back to their original doctors and report what happened. Um, only the ones who were success stories will go back and communicate with their doctors. And even if the, the gender clinics have those stories, they're not sharing them with anybody because this is a lucrative business. Planned Parenthood is getting more money than you can imagine from prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And these surgeries cost up to $70,000 per procedure. So there is a huge incentive on the part of that world, the, 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 the affirming healthcare, gender affirming healthcare world to keep the money train going. Um, and, and so we don't have, we may never have those. What we, we do have are story upon story upon story from detransitioners who are trying to tell the world what went wrong and how they weren't informed and, and they're being shut down and not being allowed to tell their stories. Um, you know, famous example, uh, a man who transitioned to a woman and then transitioned back um, had a, a YouTube conversation where he simply expressed regret for having made the transition and YouTube took it down. They said that um, it was discriminatory and hateful towards trans people. Um, you know, and, and I can tell you more stories about the way that the media has try to censor detransitioners from telling those stories. Well, that's, that's exactly what they, I hate, I keep, keep going back to this. I'm not plugging HBO's show, but that's what they did in Chernobyl is basically any mention of reality is just dismissed as misinformation. Reality right. is misinformation. Um, I do, I do want to sort of, I, I know we're coming up on an hour here and I've only got about 10 minutes left, but I do want to end on kind of a positive note. One, this seems to be the issue that gets the pushback. Because when it came to like gay marriage, the, you know, the, the conservative, whatever you want to call the conservative right wing, whatever, whatever we are, um, we rolled over uh, on, on a number of cultural issues, legalization of marijuana, we roll over, we roll over, we roll over, we roll over. This seems to be the one in which, um, and I, I will, I will take some credit for this, not for myself, but the lockdowns, um, when, when parents finally had to start schooling their children, according to what they were learning in their schools and parents for the, maybe for the first time, got a good glimpse at what their kids were learning in schools. Really there, there was no averting your eyes anymore. And it seems like out of all the issues in the culture war that are out there, 
this seems to be the one that the left is losing on the most. Do you get that sense, John? Is that Am I right on that or am I op- being too optimistic? Um, maybe a, a little bit overly rosy, but but definitely there's reason for optimism here. Um, you know, when I, I look at the gender ideology movement, it really started immediately in the wake of Obergefell. Um, all of us who, who were closely involved with the case uh, pretty much knew ahead of time that Justice Kennedy was going to vote with the rest of the liberal bloc to create a right to same-sex marriage that didn't exist anywhere in the Constitution. Yeah. Um, but the left was ready for that. And they immediately moved to add the T to the LGB uh, by having Bruce Jenner come out as Caitlyn Jenner within weeks of the ruling. You you can go back to the summer of 2015 and and the ruling comes out at the end of June and Bruce Jenner as Caitlyn Jenner is on the cover of all the magazines in July. And then they had the I Am Jazz, that was the younger boy who transitioned to a girl and had a cable TV show that was very popular and wrote books that are now in all of our school libraries. And and people didn't immediately react to that. And they they didn't even react harshly when they started to put boys identifying as girls in the girls' bathrooms and locker rooms and showers. Um, They started to wake up when it hit sports. Um, You know, when you see a boy, you know, finishing a, a half mile race half a lap around the track ahead of all the girls, you know, you start to say, wait a minute, something's not right here. But but you're right, when it came to COVID and some things that have happened since COVID in the schools, when they started coming for the youngest kids, that people really started to wake up. Um, you know, so for example, that's why people were so outraged this summer when Target came out with the Pride Month where, you know, including the, the swimsuits for the boys that helped disguise their genitals so that they looked like girls. People really got upset about that and, and Target lost all kind of profits. And then of course you had the Bud Light protest. So, so I agree with you, those are all reasons for optimism. But the reason I, I, I wouldn't get overly exuberant about that is because of what's still happening. California has a curriculum that begins in kindergarten where they encourage kids to identify how they feel with their, their gender. And they encourage those kids then to pursue their gender identity instead of their sexual identity. Um, we've got lawsuits um, at ADF has filed around the country of schools that are encouraging kids to transition and keeping it a secret from the parents, going so far as to use the child's preferred pronouns at school, but using sex reflexive pronouns when in parent-teacher meetings or in conversations with the parent. Some parents even reporting that they've gone to the school and said, look, my, my child has expressed some feelings of gender dysphoria, I do not want you to transition them. And yet they went ahead and started to do it anyway behind the parents' back. So, so I'm starting to see America wake up when it comes to this issue. The, the Target boycott, the Bud Light boycott, some of the states that are now passing uh, prohibitions on mutilating kids' genitals and using these terrible medicines when they're still minors and things like that, all really positive developments. But we have such a long way to go because the left had an eight-year head start on us. Um, And and we've got a lot of nonsense and harmful curriculum, books, media, other things that we need to root out before we can say that we're winning on this issue. It's kind of like the the pro-life issue. I was deeply involved in the Dobbs case with Mississippi. And and once we won in the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade was overturned, there were a lot of people, many Catholics, who said, hey, we won. We've been working on this for 49 and a half years, and finally Roe is overturned. 
And I think now a year later, what they're realizing is uh, that was just the beginning. We're starting chapter two now, and it might take another 49 years before we can eliminate the scourge of infanticide that is abortion from our culture permanently. And we have to do that hand-to-hand -hand combat with conversations with loved ones and people that we don't know. We need to be apologists for the, the pro-life movement. And I think it's the same thing with gender ideology. And so a great first step for people is to, to go get the book, uh, Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. It's available at all the major booksellers, but also the Sophia Institute Press website. Um, and get educated about these things so that you can start talking, you can start having these conversations. Because if we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves 10 years from now in the same way that we did with same-sex marriage. We're going to get wiped off the map. And, and, and I think the Catholic Church is so uniquely poised to answer this problem because not only do that, I mean, obviously on this show, we're going to argue that the Catholic Church possesses the charisma of truth, that we possess the fullness of truth to the exclusion of everything else. But let's say you don't believe that. Let's say you, you, you're, you're coming into this discussion about Catholicism and gender cold. I would say that we have a unique answer to this because of the physicality of our religion. So many religions are sort of, you know, they, they deal in purely spiritual matters. It's all, you know, God is up there. We're sort of down here. And like we were talking about earlier, you know, the bodies are just vessels and things like that. And the spirit is what's important and everything else is just kind of uh, it, an accident, if not downright evil. But you look at the Catholic religion, not only our focus on Jesus's physical bodily resurrection, but, you know, you walk into our churches, we have statues of the saints in their bodies. We have relics that we, that we touch and we venerate it. It's God is not just up there somewhere. He's here with us in our, you know, in, in this physical space that is his creation. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the theology of the body, which I know a lot of people who listen to our show uh, who might identify with the traditionalist movement, and, and I identify with that movement also, are leery of that, we're scared of it, whatever. Well, I'm going to argue we need John Paul II's theology of the body because the world has a theology of the body. And spoiler alert, it sucks, okay? It's <laughs> awful. It, it is a theology because it's based on, it, it is based in a sort of religious way of thinking. It is not scientific. Don't believe it. Don't believe that for a second. And in many cases, they've sort of shed the, 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 the pretense of that even. But I believe that the Catholic Church can answer that because this gender ideology, I believe, is a theological discussion. And we and we alone are uniquely poised to answer that question uh, in, in the magisterium of the church with the faith that was handed down to us from the fathers. It's almost as if JP2, back when he was writing the theology of the body, anticipated that there would be a cultural moment when people rejected male and femaleness, rejected marriage, rejected life beginning at conception. Now, he, he and, and Pope Paul VI and Humana Vitae were so prescient, you know, at, at looking where bad bodily theology would lead us. Um, it, it's absolutely incredible. But on that, that notion of the materialness of our faith, um, I think you really hit the nail on the head early on when we were talking about the Eucharist, you know, being Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. It, it's all 
there in the body. And you can't separate anything from anything else in the same way that you can't separate who we are from our bodies. This is me, this is not me trapped in a, a body. Um, and, and if you understand the true presence and you understand Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith, um, it's very easy to accept the importance of our bodies, you know, as well as their resurrection at the end of time. And if we do that, then it, it's easy to explain why something like gender ideology is wrong without even getting into the science. And, you know, John Money, the psychologist, we didn't have an opportunity to talk about and, and all of his crazy research and, you know, the, the way we're being led down this primrose path that leads to sadness and destruction, which shouldn't surprise us because any time that we sin, when we deviate from God's plan, uh, it causes harm. It's going to hurt people. And this is no different than the many other thousands of sins that human beings have in their creativity managed to come up with since the beginning of time and, and the fall in the garden. The author, John Birch, the, it, it, my, first of all, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Is it Birch? Yes, yes, it's Birch. Yes. Uh, the author, John Birch, the title of the book, Loving God's Children. There will be a link in the description. Pick yourself up a copy of this book. I mean, it's, it's, it is rich with the church's theological discussion on this topic, but it is for a lay audience. I'm no theologian. I can tell you that. And I found this book very readable and very timely. Um, John, this has been a great discussion. I, I really mm -hmm. appreciate you having you on the show. And um, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your Labor Day weekend to, to come and spend with us here on Text Catherine. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jason. This has been terrific. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, John. I, I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here thinking <laughs> we need to have John back on. I think we have a lot to learn from him. You know, maybe maybe if he'll come back on, we can talk theology of the body because we've wanted to do an episode on that for a while. Um, but well, and, you know, in many ways, this sort of this sort of um, I guess I guess I would call it Stalinist sort of oppression. You know, it's 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 worked its way into the church. It's difficult sometimes to get guests on this show to talk topics because, you know, it, it's been hard to get priests to come on the show because they're yeah. scared of, well, what if I say the wrong thing? And is my bishop going to punish me and all this and anything? So it's not just something that's out there in the culture. I mean, it's 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 pervasive and it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And when we meet people who have the courage to come on, I mean, look, we're not we're not. I don't think we really fought a culture war on the show here today. We just talked about the truth. I don't care if Republicans or Democrats win the election, quite frankly. Well, the only thing that I am concerned about is that the truth is told and that the and that we have the right to tell the truth. And I've heard people say this. Yes, I lied, but I lied for the greater good. Let me tell you something. There is no greater good than telling the truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if there's a greater good out there that mean, than, the, than, than telling the truth, that means there's a greater good than Jesus, and that is not possible. It's not possible. Sorry. Amen. And plus, these people who lie, how are they going to lead you to a greater truth, some kind of greater good that's out there when they can't even arrive at moral conclusions the average nine-year-old can arrive at. You have to get the smaller goods down first in order to lead us to the greater ones. And so I'm really happy that there are guys like John out there willing to come on the show and have a frank and honest discussion about what I consider to be one of the most pressing problems of, of our day. Um, John, thank you so much for thank coming you. on. I really appreciate it. Thank you um, both. God bless. The, the, the link is going to be in the description. I want to thank our guest, John, for coming on and, and visiting with us again today. Uh, email us at textcatheredapodcast at gmail.com and uh, 
God bless every single one of you. Until we meet again, may God bless us. May our lady keep us and may God hold us all in the palm of his hand. And remember guys, life is hard, but it's harder when you don't pray the rosary. Everybody have a great day. Bye-bye. God bless.